Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Botswana Electoral Commission refutes allegations of irregularities, and Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, calls his rival Bobby Wine an enemy of prosperity. In economics news, South African Union rejects calls for the privatization of ESCOM. And in sports news, South Africa ends Japan's fairytale rugby World Cup run. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. At least 30 people have been killed in a bus accident and 18 others injured near the DRC's capital, Kinshasa. A local official says the bus veered off the road and burst into flames. The deputy administrator of Mbanza Ngugu territory, Didier Simba, told AFP the bus laden with people and goods was travelling from Lufu to Kinshasa when its brakes failed. A passenger says more than 100 people had been in the bus at the time of the incident. Many bodies were burnt beyond recognition. Mozambique's main opposition party has rejected the ruling party's overwhelming victory indicated by early election results and urged that the vote be rerun because of what it called widespread fraud and intimidation. Renamo Secretary-General Andre Magabire says the partisan actions of police and election officials loyal to the ruling Frelimo party were a violation of the peace accord signed in August between the parties. With a third of the national vote counted, results of the National Election Commission's website showed President Philippe Nussin the lead with 69% and Renamo leader Usofu Momade with 25%. Observers have raised concerns over the credibility of the elections. Numerous irregularities have been noticed, including the registration of 300,000 more voters in Gaza province than its voting age adults, according to the 2017 census. The main opposition party in Botswana, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, says it's now in a more powerful position to win Wednesday's elections. This despite the departure of the... Botswana Movement for Democracy, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, is a coalition of three opposition parties formed before the 2014 general elections. It went on to win a record 20 seats of the 57 seats in parliament. Two new parties, Alliance for Progressives and former President Ian Khamas Botswana Patriotic Front, are also likely to split the opposition vote. UDC President Dumba Boko says they will change things. We will create 100,000 jobs in 12 months because the situation is dire. We will pay our people a living wage of not less than 3,000 pula because their situation of poverty is also dire. We will give pensioners an old age pension of 1,500 per month because the abject poverty in which they live in an upper middle income economy is totally unjustifiable. UDC supporters are also confident their party will bring about change should it win the elections. I'm ready to go and vote. To go and vote the, the, the new party. The political party that I'm going to vote is the one that is going to advocate for 1.5 uh, allowance for old age pension fund for old age. We want to go and vote the new government because this new government it promises us good things. And finally, five people have died after a garment factory was set ablaze by looters near Chile's capital, Santiago, amid a wave of protests. Protests continued across the country despite a state of emergency in five regions, the BBC's Jane Chambers reports. The curfew has failed to deter protesters. Demonstrators are looting shops and damaging metro stations and buses, defying an order to stay at home overnight. The trouble was sparked by a rise in the cost of metro tickets. President Piñera has now announced that he will cancel the increase 
saying he's listened to the people. But for many, that's not enough. They're angry about the inequality in Chile, low salaries, the high cost of healthcare, education and poor pension provisions. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Botswana's 2019 general election special votes have kicked off in the capital, Khabarone, with police and election officers casting their votes ahead of Wednesday's polls. While the Independence Electoral Commission has been harshly criticised for alleged irregularities in the delivery of external votes cast by expatriates in foreign countries, the electoral body blames the rumour on ignorance. Sintle Inglihihi reports. Electoral officials and police officers in Botswana cast their special votes ahead of Wednesday's polls. They are hoping their votes will help influence the outcome of elections and the future governance of their country. Among those who cast their votes is Ulibeng Monari. She says she voted to initiate positive change in the lives of public servants like herself. The reason why I've decided to vote is because as a, a employee of low salary, I need our salary to be adjusted. Meanwhile, some have cast aspersions on the credibility of the elections. This follows alleged irregularities in the delivery of Botswana expatriate votes in the country. However, IEC spokesperson Usupile Maroba dismissed the concerns and blamed them on ignorance of the electoral process. It's very unfortunate that sometimes people tend to cast aspersions on a process when they don't exactly understand how it should happen, when in actual fact the law is very specific on how elections are conducted. If anybody can come up to challenge uh, the contravention of sections of the electoral laws and how they should be implemented, I would listen. But if people talk from uh, the position of the rumours that they hear, it's very unfortunate. Wednesday's elections are the most fiercely contested. Although the ruling Botswana Democratic Party has ruled the landlocked country for 54 years, its main political rival, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, has been making inroads into its traditional stronghold. In the 2014 elections, UDC obtained 20 seats in the National Assembly, the highest number by an opposition party. There is now speculation that victory is no longer a given to the BDP. But registered voters cannot wait to cast their votes on Wednesday. I've registered to vote and I want to participate in these elections. Like, I want to change the governance, you know. The government is too slow for us. It will be the first time I'll be voting because I want to be responsible. I want to take part in the boosting of the economy. I intend to vote for the current government to continue because I believe the party's current leader has impressive plans and foresight. Out of the 1.6 million eligible voters, only 925,000 people have registered to vote. Sintle Inglihihi, SABC News, Khaborone, Botswana. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube, on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Meanwhile, Botswana's main opposition party, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, says it is now in a powerful position to win the election come Wednesday. This despite the departure of the Botswana Movement for Democracy. The Umbrella for Democratic Change is a coalition of three opposition parties formed before the 2014 general election. It went on to win a record 20 seats in the 57-seat parliament. Itumilen Khajan reports from Khabarone. The Umbrella for Democratic Change is prepared and ready for what is believed to be Botswana's hotly contested elections since independence in 1966. 
The UDC comprises of three opposition parties, Botswana People's Party, Botswana Congress Party and Botswana National Front. Two newcomers, the Alliance for Progressives and former Botswana President Ian Kamas Botswana Patriotic Front, are likely to split the opposition vote. However, the UDC remains confident of elections victory. Its president, Dumaboko, explains. We've become stronger. We've now become more refined, more resilient. We've responded decisively to these challenges. Boko has pledged to grow the economy. We will create 100,000 jobs in 12 months because the situation is dire. We will pay our people a living wage of not less than 3,000 pula because their situation of poverty is also dire. We will give pensioners an old age pension of 1,500 per month because the abject poverty in which they live in an upper middle income economy is totally unjustifiable. UDC supporters are also confident that their party will turn things around should it win the elections. I'm ready to go and vote. To go and vote the, the, the new party. The political party that I'm going to vote is the one that is going to advocate for 1.5 uh, allowance for old age pension fund for old age. We want to go and vote the new government because this new government it promises us good things. This time, the umbrella for democratic change goes to the elections with former Botswana president Ian Khama as part of the opposition after breaking ranks with the ruling Botswana Democratic Party. I meet you, Khajani, in Khaburoni, Botswana. Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni has called his leading critic, a musician-turned-politician Bobby Wine, an enemy of the country's prosperity. In an interview with BBC's Alan Kasuja at the State House Entebbe, the president justified the recent cancellation of Bobby Wine's concert. President Museveni said he still had unfinished business in Uganda as president and would only leave if asked to do so by his National Resistance Movement Party. Me, I'm, uh, I, I have my home, you know, very well, and uh, my home is waiting for me. But we have issues as Uganda, as Africa, to deal with. It is those, those issues that uh, make us uh, do what we, what we decide to do uh, politically, along with our colleagues. Now, if the fraternity of the NRM think that they no longer require the contribution of the elders, then we 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 happy to go and do do other things. In other countries, people like Julius Nyerere left, Ali Hassan Mwinyi left. Even though there was a demand for them to stay, I'm sure you know this better than me. Chama Chama Pinduzi was asking, which is the ruling party in Tanzania, for there to be a change to allow people like Mwinyi to stay on in power, but that did not happen. At what point will you say to them that enough is enough? The 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 way they analysed the the issues there. But there's a way also we have analyzed our issues here. Because if you, you look at our, our issues, regional, internal, every five years, there are big changes. 1986 to 1994, you had changes in Rwanda, you had changes in South Africa. 1994 to 2005, you had big changes in Congo. But what do those changes have to do with Uganda, sir? Well, you had big changes in, uh, uh, in South Sudan. They have a lot to do with Uganda because there are certain positions Uganda took which contributed this way or the other way to what happened in some of those places. That is on the regional. Internally, if you are serious, because of course the problem is that for us we are serious people. We are not jokers. We are not job seekers. We are destiny seekers, looking for the destiny of our people. Now, when you have got all those big challenges, what should Uganda do on the issue of the apartheid regime in South Africa? What happens with the problem of Rwanda? What happens with the problem of Congo? What happens with the problem of South Sudan? What happens internally on the issue of the oil, on the issue of the, of the disarmament? of Karamoja, on the issue of the rebels, on the issue of, of energy, electricity and so on. Our assessment of the NRM, the fraternity of the NRM, is that in order to handle these big issues one by one or a batch of them, if our, if our analysis is the more hands 
on board, as, as they say in the ship, the better. Then that's what de de determines our, our position. If we say no, does it matter where we are now? We can, some of the, of the veterans can go, then they, they will go. We are not here for a show, we are not theater goers. We are people who are here to deal with the very big issues of, of, of Uganda and Africa. In your mind, do you see a time when you'll say, I'm going to go back to Rajtura and look after my car? Of course, of course, of course. How soon? I, I, do you, have you put a date to it? I, I will analyze with my colleagues and we know what to, we said what to do. What about internally? The fact that Uganda has a huge youth bulge. These young people are making very serious demands about their future. They are looking for jobs. Is the government generating as many jobs as it should? Is this in many ways or in any way an internal security threat? It's not a threat. It's an opportunity. The, the, but the jobs are not there. The jobs are there. They, 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 they are there and they will be there. If you look at agriculture, big potential. We were struggling with the basics, electricity. We now have enough electricity and we are building more and more and more. One of the issues is the mentality. Because some of the people are looking for white-collar jobs instead of looking for uh, jobs, jobs. There is uh, commercial agriculture, there is uh, industry, factories, there is uh, services, hotels and so on. You can see how many people are already employed in transport, then ICT. The youth are not a problem, they are actually an opportunity. In each and every one of us, there, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live, live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of, of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by, by Design, be the architect of your life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African perspective. perspective. Former leader of South Africa's main opposition Democratic Alliance, Helen Ziller, has been elected the party's new federal council chairperson. They held its highly contested election over the weekend. Ziller, Athol Trollope, Thomas Walters and Mike Waters were contesting for the position. For more on this, our reporter Natasha Perry spoke to Helen Ziller. How important is this position and what are your roles and responsibilities? It is a very important position in the Democratic Alliance. It is a background position. It is not the leadership position, and I will stay in my lane. It's a background position to make sure that all of the systems, structures, processes mesh within the DA to give effect to the decisions that are taken in this very important policy and governing body of the DA called the Federal Council, which is the most important body meeting between Congresses that only happens every three years. So. It is the position that is responsible for making sure that decisions are turned into implementable practice and that there's transparency, fairness and accountability in the organization. And that is why it's so important. I mean, you've made a comeback to the leadership of the Democratic Alliance. And I mean, people, uh, by people, I mean the general public are saying that it's quite typical of an African leader. You have difficulties of letting go. Let me tell you that I was having such a ball, being a gogo, starting my own media company called the Godzilla Media Group, which I quite liked, doing a lot of new form information, communication technology, really getting onto the new frontier of my life. So my life doesn't depend on coming back and having political power. But before anything else can succeed in South Africa, we have to make this democracy work. It is the single most important thing if we are to have a future in this country. And frankly, with the way the world is going, if the world is going to have a future, people from very different backgrounds, from very different cultures, have to learn to live together in freedom in a democracy. That is our big role in South Africa. And if we don't get that right, nothing else really matters. So I decided to put my hat in the ring when I was asked to do so and I'm going to give it my very best shot in a support role, not the leadership role.
I mean, we've heard comments made by um, Herman Mashaba saying that he'll resign from his position if you are appointed as Fed co-chairperson. The appointment has been made. You are the now, you know, Fed co-chairperson. Are you not concerned, perhaps, that people see you as a divisive leader? Well, I'm not quite sure how you elide from Herman Mashaba, who's an individual, to this general notion of people seeing me. I mean, Herman speaks for Herman, and other people speak for themselves, and that is the way the Democratic Alliance approaches people. As individuals, they speak for themselves. And just because a person who happens to be this color, or this gender, or this sexuality says something, doesn't mean to say that they speak for everybody in that biological category. We don't agree with that approach to the world, and I'm sure Herman Mishaba doesn't either, because he used to be the chairman of the Free Market Foundation, which fundamentally believes in freedom and believes in market economies and believes in judging individuals by who they are, not the color of their skin. So I wouldn't jump to any conclusions about Herman Mishaba by what I read in the newspapers, and I would love to have a chat with Herman Mishaba. In fact, if I recall correctly, I was one of the people, one of the people who recruited him into the Democratic Alliance. Like Musi Maimani as well. Well, I did my very best, and I will continue doing my very best, to recruit people into the DA, because when you do your opinion polls and look at the vast majority of South Africans, actually the vast majority of us want to live in peace together. We want to ensure that everybody's included in the economy. We want everybody to get a good education. We want everybody to have a fair chance in life. We want everybody to be able to become the best they can be. And those are the values on which we build a new majority. And we keep on getting stuck in this race debate. Now, obviously, race divided people and took away people's opportunities in the past. That is absolutely true, and that has to be fixed. But getting stuck in the race debate actually prevents us from fixing that. What we need to be doing is focusing on how we get every child's education up to par, how we get investment pouring into this country, which it can do if we have proper stable government according to the rule of law, pouring into this country so people can get jobs, so it can, people can move into the middle class, look after their families, and live a life they value. The vast majority of South Africans want that. So that's what I'm involved in politics for, to bring those people together in one organization across racial lines. Just because I happen to be deprived in the melanin department doesn't mean to say I'm not passionately committed to everybody's chances in life. Just staying on Herman Mashaba, I mean, Herman Mashaba and Musi Maimani had branded the Institute of Race Relations as a right-wing movement, the same movement that you were a part of at some point. How do you then intend on working um, with these two leaders? Well, as I recall, Herman Mashaba was the president of the Free Market Foundation. And as far as I know, the IRR stands for freedom, stands for constitutionalism, stands for the rule of law, stands for a market economy, and stands for non-racialism in the idea that every individual has the right to be judged on their own merits and not the color of their skin. Now, if that's right-wing, then the word has lost all meaning. Let's just go back to your position. What are your top priorities moving on um, in your role? To support the leadership of the party, to do a good job, to ensure that many of the functions in this position, because there are huge numbers of functions, are delegated, to make sure that we act transparently, to make sure that the discipline in this party is applied fairly to everybody, not in an authoritarian way. That's Helen Ziller, newly elected DA Federal Council Chairperson, speaking to Natasha Piri. The growth of anti-Semitism worldwide is a sign that other forms of hatred and xenophobia are becoming more destructive and widespread. The UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Ahmed Shahid, warned last week. Speaking to Connor Lennon from UN News, Shahid, a former foreign minister for the Maldives, also explained what his role as a special rapporteur entails, what drives him to speak out about human rights abuses and the recent elections to the Human Rights Council. Shahid began by confirming that the global rise in anti-Semitic violence is significant and worrying. If you look at some of the data published, um, we see at a global level a rise of some 38% from last year, to the, from previous year to the current, current year. 
that's the mega statistics but of course these are misleading because not much data is collected but there is evidence from different contexts that in each context there is a rise in anti-Semitism, both objective incidents and the subjective fear that many Jewish communities feel around the world. And what are the main reasons? Well, you know, uh, anti-Semitism has been long known as a canary in the coal mine of, of global hate, of, of hatred. So when things start to go wrong, uh, you know, the, the first signs you get um, are signs of anti-Semitism. So we're seeing a global surge, a global tsunami of hatred, as it's called in, 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 in June. So in that context, we've seen rise in xenophobia, um, uh, rise in scapegoating, conspiracy theories, all these are, you know, uh, uh, stuff that anti-Semitism is, is made up of. And we have the online dimension, which is feeding globally uh, a surge of hatred. And again, anti-Semitism is part of that. Canary in the coal mine, as you said, it indicates that hate generally is becoming more of a problem. Absolutely. Uh, I think we're seeing around the world different forms of hatred rising. And of course, I do find in my work that anti-Semitic uh, incidents tend to become more violent than perhaps on the other forms of hatred. That's again a reason why I did focus on this subject in my report this time. And can you identify any solutions to this? How can we, how can we change the situation? Well, I advocate for a human rights-based approach to addressing this issue. I advocate for in immediate and practical steps, including uh, steps based on state obligations like enforcing laws, having laws in place, enforcing laws as well. At the same time, education is a key factor in ensuring that we address current issues and also prevent uh, future occurrences of, of anti-Semitic hatred. Now, you've been interested in the area of human rights for a very long time, even early in your career in the Maldives. You focused on human rights, you created the Maldives National Human Rights Commission. What was it that interested you in this topic in particular? Well, um, I have always been uh, quite offended by, by hatred. I've always been struck by how widespread anti-Semitism is, in, even in my own country where there have never been uh, you know, Jewish presence. But it's so widespread in, in every place you go. A and like I said, I am very concerned in my mandate about rising global intolerance. And I think that the place to start off is the oldest hatred. Because if we learn how toxic anti-Semitism is, if we learn how toxic conspiracy theories, scapegoating, are, then we begin to address all issues as well. So, of course, all require specific attention. And for me, anti-Semitism is a particularly pernicious form of hatred of all hatreds. And before your current mandate, you were the Special Rapporteur for Human Rights uh, in Iran. And you faced a lot of criticism from the Iranian authorities when you were in that role. Why do you think that is? I think every time someone speaks uh, up for human rights, there'll be somebody who will not be happy with that. I think in Iran's case, they have a long history of um, not really objecting to human rights. You, you will recall the, the former Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, had called human rights a Zionist a conspiracy. Um, the current Supreme Leader calls it the mumbo-jumbo of Satan's disciples. So you see where, where human rights stand in the country. So when you are documenting rights violations, when you are talking about victims who have no voice, then of course those in power don't like that. I think Iran finds that respecting human rights will actually um, destroy the regime because it stands upon gender hierarchy, it stands upon violation of women's rights, it stands upon human rights violations. So it goes to the core of their being to be challenged on human rights. And how do you deal with that criticism? Well, if you are uh, speaking up for what is right, then you have to prepare to face the criticism that comes with it. And what enables me to go on is the fact that there are people who um, who need attention. There are people who find value in the work I do that despite opposition from governments sometimes or very often they take notice and do the right thing. So when I wrote to government of Iran their public response would be denial and of course some hatred I suppose but then I do find almost every instance they take a step back. So there is, there is uh, if you like some impact of the work we do and that keeps us going. I think it's important uh, to highlight that I am not the UN. Um, that I am an independent expert uh, tasked by the UN to look at issues independently. So my report doesn't reflect the views of the UN. I, I report to the Human Rights Council and to the, and the Assembly here on what I find to be issues that the Council and the Assembly need to, need to address. And that's because the uh, uh, Assembly here had passed a resolution in 1981 called the UN uh, Declaration on Eliminating All Forms of Intolerance and of Discrimination Based on Reason or Belief. So my job is to see how states are implementing this or not doing that and offer ideas on how that may go forward. That's the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Ahmed Shahid, speaking to Connor Lina from UN News.
across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa Reporting for Channel Africa I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre Reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, at least 30 people have been killed in a bus accident and 18 others injured near the DRC's capital, Kinshasa. Mozambique's main opposition party has rejected the ruling party's overwhelming victory indicated by early election results. And Tanzania's Minister of Foreign Affairs has dismissed as nonsensical rumours about President John Makafuli's health. Those are the stories making headlines. In each and every one of us, there, there is, is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you. You can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live your life, life by, by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of, of Monday, Monday motivation. motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by design, design, be the architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, the African, the African Perspective. perspective. Kenya marked Heroes Day on Sunday. The day is reserved to celebrate Kenyans who fought for the country's independence or contributed to building and strengthening the nation. James Shimayula has more from Nairobi. Field Marshal Sir Deda Nikimathi, as he was known during the British colonial rule in Kenya, was described by colonialists as overall commander of Mau Mau. Mau Mau was a popular four-year uprising against the British for the return of the lost ancestral land in Kenya. Kenyan researchers on the uprising say, reversed, Mau Mau stands for Uma, Uma, meaning get out, get out in Kikuyu, Kenya's largest ethnic group inhabiting the country's central region. Dr. Margaret Gachihi is a Kenyan historian focusing on Kenya's freedom struggle. She shares her perspective of who Dedan Kimathi was. Dedan Kimathi to me is synonymous with the liberation struggle that we call in history the Mau Mau, was perhaps the leading fighter, best known for many reasons, by no means the only one, but perhaps the most forceful of the freedom fighters. And the most mysterious, when I say forceful, is that uh, his strategies of of war as a fighter were very unique and different to the other so-called generals in the Mau Mau. Historian Gashihi explains why Kimathi was a thorn in the flesh of British colonial power. He was very good in propaganda. After he was captured, Kimathi was tried for illegally possessing a revolver and six rounds of ammunition. On November 27, 1956, he was sentenced to death. Kimathi was finally hanged on February 18, 1957 and buried at an unmarked grave at Committee Maximum Security Prison on the northwestern outskirts of Nairobi. In memory of Dedan Kimathi, the Kenyan government has constructed a 2.1-meter bronze monument on a graphite plinth right in the center of Kenya's capital, Nairobi. I'm in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. To be more specific, I'm standing on Kimathi Street, one of the historic streets where the monument 
of Dedanikimathi stands. I approach Alfred Mutuku in his mid-30s crossing Kimathi Street. Does Mutuku know anything about Dedanikimathi? I don't know what I can just say. To me, the government, they remember them eh? because they are the one who made the Republic of Kenya. So to me, the government, I, I can just say that it's good. It's really... It means a lot. The next person I meet as he crosses Kimathi Street is Irungu Mwangi, aged 64. Mwangi has something to say about Kimathi, but first, without providing names, he briefly paints a general mental picture of all freedom fighters during the British colonial rule in Kenya. What I knew, they fought for the independent. And then they were later killed by the colonial government. I wanted to know how old Mwangi was at the time and whether or not he saw Kimathi. I was born in 1955, so I was old enough. No, 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 I've never seen him. And this is how Karanja Mugambi remembers what his father told him about Kimathi. He was a freedom fighter. I'm told that he came from Nyeri and fought for independence. Nyeri that Mugambi is referring to is one of Kenya's 47 counties located in central Kenya, northwest of the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Margaret Githinji, a 55-year-old mother of five, tells us what she was told by her mother about Dedani Kimathi and the other freedom fighters. I just know him as a freedom fighter. I just feel like we are honoring them and appreciating what they did for us. And this is how this Kenyan who refused to disclose his age and preferred not to be named sounded poetically when I asked him if he knew Dada Nikimathi. It's not master, know everything. If you don't know, you don't know. Some historians argue that if Kimathi was alive today, he would have been the founding father of Kenya and not Jomo Kenyatta. So, what does historian Gachihi think of this comparison? You really cannot compare the freedom fighters because each had their own uh, narrative. There were men like Kenyatta who had been to places, London, Russia and so on. He was a gentleman of the world, he was a citizen of the world and therefore his perspective of what freedom was or how it could be attained, what nationalism was and what it could be was very different from Kemathi whose world was not large but who knew of methods that Kenyatta would not have used or known about to carry out his end of the freedom struggle. That's the way I would like to see it, that each was different, but the goal was the same. Though honored as one of Kenya's biggest freedom hero, Kimathi's burial site remains unknown to this day. His family and the Kenyan government have been pleading with the British government to come clear and allow Kimathi to be given a decent burial befitting a statesman. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The Kenyan government is rolling out a vaccination program to protect girls from cervical cancer. The country's health ministry is set to introduce free cervical cancer vaccines and screening targeting girls between the ages of 9 and 10. The BBC's Rhoda Odiambo reports. 10-year-old Joyce Massey is getting this life-saving vaccine. This dose of the HPV vaccine is injected in her upper arm. It's hoped it will dramatically reduce her chances of getting cervical cancer. I wanted to be vaccinated because I didn't want to go through what my mother went through. Her mom, Millicent Kagongo, is a survivor of this silent disease that affects women across Kenya and many other parts of the world. She asked her daughter to get vaccinated because had she known about it while she was young, she would have gotten it in good time. I want to encourage this afternoon, every woman out there, please go get your go get your screening. And if you have a child, it doesn't matter. Maybe it is your niece, maybe it is your cousin, maybe it is your daughter. Please follow my footsteps and get, let your daughters to be vaccinated. She's one of the lucky ones to emerge victorious in the fight against cervical cancer in her country. Data from the health ministry shows that of the more than 5,000 women diagnosed with the disease last year, over 3,000 of them died. 
Health Cabinet Secretary Cecily Karaoke said this vaccination program would help cut these numbers. As has been said, nine women in Kenya die every day. One is too many. Nine, not acceptable. The HPV vaccine works best if girls and boys get it before they become sexually active. The vaccine will be given free of charge to girls in public, private and faith-based hospitals. In private facilities, it costs about 70 US dollars, an amount not many Kenyans can afford. Before this program was launched, the Catholic Church were opposed to it. But Archbishop Martin Kivuva said that after seeing studies done around the vaccine, he now believes it will protect girls from cervical cancer. We wanted assurance that it won't cause any harm, and this has been confirmed. It is obvious that we had issues with it, but after further research, we have confirmed that it is safe and it has been launched today. President Uhuru Kenyatta urged Kenyans to take charge of their health by going for regular screenings to avoid missing signs of the disease. 80% of cancers in the country are diagnosed late. He warned those opposed to the HPV vaccine from spreading false information about its effectiveness. So please, let us not fight science. Let us work together. Let us answer questions from an intellectual point of view. Let us talk and discuss and let us agree because I believe we all mean the same. Kenya now joins Uganda, Tanzania and Rwanda in the East African region in rolling out the vaccine, which will cost the Kenyan government about 7.7 million US dollars in the first year. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. <laughs> Hi, my name is Linda Ngumalosi, Oswatini Tourism Authority. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Africa, Africa, Africa Unite. Wake up. Wake up. At least 12 elephants have died of drought-induced starvation within the past two weeks at the Hangwe National Park in Zimbabwe. Our Zimbabwean correspondent Simon Muchema has more from Harare. 12 elephants have died at Wange National Park in the past two weeks due to starvation Zimbabwe wildlife officials have revealed. According to the United Nations, the drought that has affected the region this year is the worst in 27 years, hence water levels have dried up inhabitation destroyed. While the report on deaths owing to climate change induced drought is mainly for elephants, other animal species, especially birds, have also died. During an interview with Channel Africa, Zimbabwe National Park spokesperson Tinashe Farao admitted the situation at Wange Parks is dire. Wange is run on 100% groundwater, which means bore water. We are drilling bores and to some extent we drill bores up upwards of 200 meters in search of the precious liquid. Our animals are starving because there's no water. Our animals are starving because there's no food. There is a massive loss of habitat in Wange and in some of our major parks. And this is proving to be the biggest threat to the survival of our animals. So when we say these things to say this is science, this is evidence, evidence to that. Some of the animals that uh, we have lost over the years, initially we thought it was um, anthrax. We did the test, they were negative. Okay. We then did the test, we suspected also that maybe it was poisoning and it was negative. So, at the end of the day, we then discovered that it was uh, starvation because some animals, they are dying within 50 meters of a water hole. In 2013, more than 300 elephants died in Wange Park when poachers lashed the wildlife drinking wells with cyanide. That was the worst poaching activity 
in the Southern African region in 25 years, authorities said. In 2015, Wange National Park came back on the limelight when Cecil the lion was killed and attracted global condemnations and a call was made for the suspension of hunting rights. However, upon tests and investigations, Zimbabwe National Parks, Zimparks, discovered the elephant deaths recently is not related to poaching, but the beasts are dying with their tusks intact. That report by Simon Muchema from Harare in Zimbabwe. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. South Africa's Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, says it rejects the calls for the privatization of power utility ESCOM, especially when the country experiences load shedding. NUMSA says independent power producers are currently contributing to the financial burden of ESCOM. The power utility has been implementing load shedding following a technical problem at its Midupi power station. NUMSA spokesperson, Pagamile Hlubi Majola. Been able to replenish our diesel uh, levels uh, at our open cycle gas turbines. The water levels at our pump storage schemes have also increased. Uh, the repair work at the Middle Peak conveyor belt is also almost done. So we're looking much, much better. Shell Egypt says Royal Dutch Shell plans to sell its onshore upstream assets in Egypt's western desert to focus on expanding its Egyptian offshore gas exploration. Having won three oil and two gas concessions in Egypt last February, a senior executive last week told Reuters that the company would start operating the new areas in the second half of next year. Shell Egypt chairman Khaled Qasim said that he expects the talks with potential buyers of the Western Desert assets to start in the final quarter of this year. Barrick Gold Corporation says it had reached a deal to settle a long-running tax dispute between Tanzania and mining group Acacia, which Barrick bought in a 1.2 billion US dollar transaction approved by a British court last month. The tax deal includes the payment of 300 million US dollars to settle outstanding tax and other disputes, the lifting of a concentrate export ban, and the sharing of future economic benefits from the mines on a 50 50 basis. Barrick president and chief executive Mark Bristow says Barrick is definitely back in Tanzania. The British pound has slipped against the dollar after commercial currency markets opened for the first time since the British MPs backed a move to delay the approval of the Brexit deal. Several big banks in London have called in extra staff expecting volatile trading after Saturday's sitting in the House of Commons. Prime Minister Boris Johnson had previously said that he would rather be, as he put it, dead in a ditch than to ask for any extension to the October the 31st deadline. But he was compelled by a past law last month by opponents to send a letter to the bloc asking to push back the deadline to January the 31st next year. The US dollar is trading at 361 Nigerian Nara, 1075 Botswana Pula, 102.76 a Kenyan shilling, and 1318 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the one US dollar will cost you 411. Brazilian roll, 63.73 Russian ruble, 70.78 Indian rupee, 7.8 Chinese yuan, and 14.74 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,489, platinum $889 per ounce, brand crude $59.25 a barrel. From an African perspective.
Tune in to Vision 2030 with Una Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One. Hashtag Vision 2030. Our sports update up next with Figle Lingwati. Figle, watching that, that rugby match yesterday was... The most stressful thing on a weekend. Yeah, given the fact that uh, Japan are a giant killer, nobody thought it was going to be this big margin. But uh, we knew, we knew when we were watching that uh, if Mabimbi can get first try, then we're going. No, we're but it took a while. He got the first try. Yes. And after that, there was a serious lull for some time. Yeah, but the Mabimbi was, was just a, I think it's a load star for, for the for the spring box. Yeah, I think uh, Faf de Klerk played a very, very pivotal role. Yeah. Give us an update. First up in our sports update, we still bring you the stories from Japan where Rugby Australia Chief Raylene Castle says she already has a list of targets to be the new Wallabies coach with an announcement expected by Christmas as she defended not axing Michael Chaker sooner. The 52-year-old Chaker called time on his five-year tenure Sunday after Australia's decimal World Cup quarterfinal exit to England. Stung by a sharp criticism of his tactics. Glasgow Warriors coach Dave Reveney, a New Zealander, is considered favourite to replace him with a new appointee expected to be handed a four-year deal, taking them beyond the 2023 World Cup. Ireland's Joe Schmidt is also available, with England coach Eddie Jones also being suggested. Springbok coach Rasi Rasmus says they knew they had to come up with something special in the second half of their 2019 Rugby World Cup quarterfinal against Japan. After a start which saw the box take a five-point lead against the host following Magazole Mabimbi try, there was a lull. But the South Africans took control of the match in the second half, scoring two more tries to win 26-3 and go through to the semi-finals. Rasmus says he hopes they go through to the final of the tournament. Going in half-time, only being up a few points, and leaving a few tries out there, uh, there was definitely a little bit of a, of a lull and a quietness in our change room. Uh, but I think being together for 17 weeks, the, the guys knew which buttons to push uh, to get ourselves out of that lull and, and come and produce it in the second half. So, uh, yeah, we're a bit proud of that. And now we're into the semi-finals and hopefully we can uh, put it through. Japan coach Jamie Joseph gave credit to the Springboks, saying they are a great team. Credit to South Africa, they were able to snuff us out and there was only one pass away from and sometimes breaking them open, um, but I thought also the scramble defence was outstanding. We've had a bit of luck, um, we've played really well in the previous four or so games. South Africa was another step up, um, you've got to take your head off, a very good rugby team. Netball South Africa President Cecilia Mulukwane has been named the new president of Netball Africa. Mulukwane was named to the hot seat at the end of last week and will also serve as the International Netball Federation's director for Africa. She replaces Botswana Stembukholibotse Sibaho, who stepped down earlier this month. Mulukwane says it has been an overwhelming year for her and she's very proud to take on this new role. Overwhelmed. Firstly, I would like to thank the Almighty God because I believe everything in life happens for a reason. It's been a bittersweet year for me if you have followed me. I've lost my husband in February, my mother in July, my uncle just four weeks ago. So it's not been an easy year for me. But in those bitterness and sadness came 2023 Netball World Cup. The girls performing wonderfully at the World Cup. And now yesterday, being announced as the Africa president and voted in, it was just over the moon. So I say everything in life happens for a reason and God puts you where he wants to put you for a reason. And I think it's time that South Africa take the seat where it should be and be leading the African continent. Because I believe we are the sister to the countries that are in Africa and we can do more with them and we can work together and build this African continent to be a force to reckon with in the world. 
And finally, tennis news. Roger Federer will check off another landmark today when he starts his bid for a 10th Basel title by playing the 1,500th match of his career. A 38-year-old begins his bid for his 103rd title against German qualifier Peter Goyovsky. The 20-time Grand Slam champion has beaten the German twice, including at Indian Wells last March. Federer, who has made the Basel final on all of his last 12 visits, owns ATP titles this season in Dubai, Miami and Harley. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Botswana Electoral Commission refutes allegations of irregularities, and Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni calls his rival Bobby Wine an enemy of prosperity. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Moby Dixon featuring something Soweto with a song titled Abandu. <laughs>